Welcome to our latest Design-Inspired Healthcare webinar, where we'd like to invite medical innovators to share their journey with the greater community. This month, we're joined by Professor Andrew DeMeo. He's the Senior Product Manager at Greenlight Guru. He's the former professor of biomedical engineering, senior design at UNC and NCSU. He's the CEO and founder of Canvas GT Now Strategy, uh, which was recently acquired by Greenlight Guru, where he's developing a medical device success platform that we'll talk more about today. He's been a consultant to many organizations on design thinking, process of innovation, and entrepreneurial mindset. He's even spent some time with our TRIG team as innovation design coach as well. So really happy to have you here, Andrew. Welcome. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much for the like kind introduction here and then the marketing for the event. I was like, who is that guy? I want to meet him. <laughs> you're too kind, sincerely. Oh my gosh. I think you're too kind for being here as well. And just in general, I think a good place to get started would just be like at the origin. I noticed that you worked in the film industry like very early on. Yeah, you know, I think back in the 90s. And so what was that time like for you in the New York film industry back then? And how did this time set you up for the rest of your career post-grad as a designer? Oh, man. it's It really is the foundation for everything, especially when it comes to design. I was part of designing sets, being a set dresser and a property person in New York City's film industry. And I really got lucky. I got lucky to work on acclaimed productions like The Sopranos, as an example. Um, and everything from working under pressure to having no ego it was really about the team it was about the crew like the whole crew does this production and there's a crew party at the end and so there might be some stars on the stage that get a lot of the accolades but i think everyone that's in the film industry really appreciates the, the crew that brings something together like this. Just learning about teamwork really is the foundation for me. Th thinking in terms of this topic, so we're talking about evolutionary design today, right? And so the thing that jumped to my mind was how a script evolved over the course of a show. So in something like The Sopranos, it might take us, I can't actually remember if it took us a week or two weeks to film one episode. It's been so long ago, but I think it was about a week-ish to film one episode. And on the very first day of the shoot, we would get a three-ring binder and it was the white script and it was all the pages were white and we would read it. We'd read it before the first day of shooting. So maybe we'd get it a week before or something like that. Um, but every single day we'd be issued pages that were revisions so it'd be like we'd get the blue pages and those pages you just get a little tiny stack of blue pages and you'd insert them in and replace pull out the white and insert the blue and then there'd be the green pages and the pink pages and by the end of the episode i've got a few of these like literally in my attic in a box somewhere some of the scripts that we worked on the sopranos and it would be a rainbow of colors so it's like the script itself <laughs> evolved over the course of the episode. And so those rainbow colored three ring binder scripts might be my very first introduction to what is evolutionary design. That's incredible. What seasons did you work on the show? I worked on the very first season, not the pilot, no, episode, wow. but that very first season, my brother, he was the prop master who hired me. I was the young guy. He worked for, I don't know, the first four, 
seasons or, or more. There's like a little trivia thing, which the production company asked to use our last name as the name of the head of the crime family. So if you look at the Sopranos crime family, Ercole DeMeo is the head of the Sopranos crime family. <laughs> wow. How cool is that? Yeah, I recently watched a documentary about the Sopranos and how it changed the game for the film industry and distribution like thereafter. <laughs> I digress. I think let's move on now to after you finished your master's in bioengineering and just had so much going for you at that point. I feel within five years after graduating, you worked as a design engineer. You founded Galero and the North Carolina Medical Device Organization. You founded your consulting firm. You started teaching at UNC. It's just so many things going on. And was this sort of like the life that you hoped to have lived when you were a kid? And also, what lessons did you learn about client-based services and entrepreneurship during this time as well? The life that I hoped to have lived, I really, I don't know that I knew of any other life. There was a really short period of time, like there was maybe a two-year period of time where I was doing a nine-to-five gig at Alaris Medical Systems as a design engineer. And I think I'm going to be 50 this year. <laughs> and in like my whole entire life, like I remember I was an entrepreneur when I was a paper boy. We could take like half of an episode on my entrepreneurial endeavors as a paper boy in middle school. <laughs> but from <laughs> like literally from being a paper boy to working in the movie business, to being a professor, to starting these companies, to where I am today with Canvas GT getting acquired by Greenlight Guru. I've lived the life of an entrepreneur that whole entire time. So I don't know that I knew or know of anything different, but yeah, when it comes to entrepreneurship and especially entrepreneurship, I'll talk about that more specifically, what I've learned, what I learned then, and what I continue to learn. And Ty helped teach me this too, is that entrepreneurship is, is a social service. Right. I think that oftentimes, especially in school, entrepreneurship is taught as this way to grow, scale, big business, lots of money. And I don't see that in reality. In reality, I see people that sacrifice their own prosperity to provide prosperity for others. It's about creating jobs. It's about doing good and creating jobs. And yeah, I just, I kind of learned early on and I continue to learn that entrepreneurship is really a social service. You started your career at UNC and then NCSU, essentially at the same time as your consulting firm, which is really interesting. And in both cases, you're educating people on process of innovation, design thinking, the entrepreneurial mindsets. But I feel like the context in this too is very different. And how do you differentiate these teachings where you're teaching the students versus teaching essentially startup founders or people in various firms? Yeah, that was really important. That was a critical time for me. I was among the very first cohort of biomedical engineering faculty that were changing the way that we taught biomedical innovation, entrepreneurship design. So back in 2006, it was the year that, I don't know if you're familiar with BME IDEA, the Innovation Design and Entrepreneurship Alliance was formed about that time. The biodesign book that came out of Stanford came out in 2010. So this was the very beginning of this. And uh, I'll just sort of wrap it all into the word biodesign. I guess Stanford gets a lot of the credit, but if I say this biodesign process worked really well in a bubble, like it worked really well 
inside this academic setting where you could create this, hey, we're going to identify unmet needs in a hospital, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do that. I got known for being one of the innovators of this process. And so I would get invited to do it. And of course, consult this practice in many settings from businesses to medical societies, to NIH grant awardees, researchers, just like this huge gamut. And it didn't take me long to realize that it didn't work. Because if you started with like pure biodesign, uh, I would notice that people would just fall asleep instantly. It's, oh, identify an unmet need. <laughs> and I would just like sleep. We did that a long time ago. And that was also huge in this whole, like, how do new medical innovations, how does any innovation evolve? And what does that design process actually look like? And it looked like none of them. And it just taught me that there's these key ingredients in design, innovation, and entrepreneurship that get sprinkled in but don't happen in any particular order. Seeing all those different settings was just, I got really lucky again, just to have so many different perspectives. Can did I you just... ever get to, I think it's just a random question, but did you ever get to meet any student later on that was your student for your medical engineering classes and then ended up like working with you in some capacity later on, or you met them at some firm that you were consulting, you're like, wow, no way. All of the above, right? I think probably so that students have become attorneys, doctors, important positions at large medical device companies. I think one of the funnest was when starting Canvas GT and getting acquired by Greenlight Guru, and I was out like pitching for who are going to be some of our early adopters. I like started making some cold calls into, I won't say the name of the company, but at any rate, basically at the end of the day, one of my former students was the one that I'm pitching to. <laughs> I was like, man, the tables are like, this is wow. a perfect opportunity. Like I would grade their presentations and tell them everything that they did wrong. And I was pretty strict with the students. I was like, man, this could really come back to haunt me. You got the stick to do the grading, but it's at like much higher stakes right right now. So that was a lot of fun. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm sure that your work well prepared them for that moment too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't mean to cut you off, Ty, if you had something before. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to drill down when you say that biodesign doesn't work. When you think about the rigor that's involved with biodesign with, you know, step one through 57, like, do you mind elaborating on that a bit more? Yeah, biodesign works great <laughs> in the setting of the way Stanford has it set up or mm -hmm. in the way that maybe the programs that emulate biodesign, it works, it works fantastic. The analogy that I like to use is the book, The Goal by L-U-M gold rat. Did I say that right? I can't pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yep. In the goal, you can be running a manufacturing facility and you could take the time to set up the leanest, meanest process in that manufacturing facility. You just can't cut and paste that into another manufacturing facility. It doesn't work over here. So what I found was biodesign got a lot of credit, which it should, that they were like cutting and pasting it into very similar looking factories and it was running really well. And it does work absolutely great. It works as good as the Toyota production system works in a Toyota manufacturing facility. But once you got outside of that, then if you just tried to cut and paste it, it didn't work. Makes sense. So it's like at a fractal level, it doesn't necessarily scale up or down outside of the conditions it was built with. Exactly.
So I think you brought it up before about how you've worked with a ton of companies, you started a ton of companies. And so is there one sort of product that sticks out to you or one company that sticks out to you that you're just like super proud of that you just hang your hat on at the end of the day? No, it's the people that have impacted me and the people that I've had the chance to impact. And maybe that's another thing that weighs heavy on me as an entrepreneur and someone that when I think about this being a social service, right? It's like what I've done in the classroom might've changed the course of people's lives, right? And that's that weighs heavy on me. Much more heavy when I convince dad with children to quit his well-paying job and join my startup company. And then two years later, it fails. And they have to sell their house and pick up and move to a new place. That's for real. That's for real. That's the stuff that I lose sleep at night. But when I think about that same person would say that the time that they spent at the company that we started was the most meaningful time of his life and his career, right? And the lives that I've impacted and those people that have impacted my lives are the most important thing. Incredible. I've never heard of it being called a social service before. I love that take. I think it's really interesting. And also, I think, I'm sure you've seen it over the past five years or so, maybe even longer. Entrepreneurialism has been like a trend, I guess you could say. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and they don't really understand that not everyone makes it. There's a lot of failure that comes in with being an entrepreneur and not everyone's really ready for that. It's an interesting trend that I hope still continues, but at the same time, people understand a bit more of like really what it takes and it takes a ton out of you and a ton of confidence and a ton of belief and just so much more. But now we're really getting to meet of this one here. So <laughs> let's get into the design thinking aspect of this. So how does design thinking enable evolutionary design? But then after that, why should companies consider using it? And then where do companies actually go wrong when they're trying to implement it? I feel like that's another aspect of it as well. Yeah. So what is evolutionary design anyway? (laughs) And honestly, how should companies use it? I think that evolutionary design is how we naturally operate. And maybe in a minute, I can give a demo on how we're enabling it, right? But we're enabling, I think, something that's really natural. The way that I like to think about design, and if you're in the medical device industry, the word design controls can be a buzzword, right? I ask people, tell me what you think when you hear design controls. And the answers I get back are like constrained, constrains creativity. It's a process. It's a hurdle, all these like really negative things. That's really bothered me because when I hear design control, I hear control something. You control things that are really important, right? You might control a manufacturing process to produce the same output the same way every time. My favorite example of where does creativity and control and maybe an evolutionary process manifest itself would be in cuisine and food. Think about five-star or Michelin-star restaurant. You have to have a creative genius chef who's coming up with some new dish that is a new gastro experience. And at the same time, They've got to produce this dish over and over again, cooked by many different chefs because the same chef's not cooking it every single time. And it's got to come out like perfect. So when anybody goes into the restaurant at any time, they get this five-star experience, right? That's, to me, that's creativity and control. And we want to control how that dish is served every time. 
So now, how does that dish evolve? What is the evolutionary process? And I think we live it, maybe some of us do, in our kitchens. And my experience is this. It's like, I want to perfect a pizza. Every time I make a pizza, I do a little bit different. I do a little bit different and then nail it. Just This is the one. This is the one. And I look at my wife and I'm like, what did we do? It's like, I think this time we let the dough rest longer. I think maybe we did this and it's, yeah. But each time we were making pizza, we were making little adjustments here and there. If you look at chef's life, they've got this notebook of going back pages to wait. I had this many grams of flour. Wait, no, I did this many grams. No, I did this many, but it was like back there. And then they moved and they've got this notebook and when they nail it, they can kind of like put all the pieces together of that evolutionary process. And then it's like, it is controlled, right? That's to me what defines evolutionary design. And then how can we put that to practice in what we do in innovating new medical devices? That's such a cool analogy. It also brings to mind what you opened with the script and how you'd have rainbow pages throughout the evolution of an episode, latitude to make changes because you're in pursuit of what works, but then you also have a process for controlling communication across a team where each person is worried about execution and getting it right and being efficient. You just made something click for me in a unique way there. So <laughs> anyway, I'm excited by that. Healthcare's greatest innovations came from people just like you who work there day in and day out. As a provider, you've noticed a better way to do things, but you're feeling short on time. You want to take your idea to the next level, and you don't want to pause your career to do it. Whether it's an update to a procedure, modernized patient care, a device that the market has not yet seen, or possibly a change that can shake up the entire healthcare system as we know it, we at MedDesign empower you to make headway by tackling manageable pieces of the complex puzzles that you face. Through our curriculum developed in partnership with the University of North Carolina and coaching sessions by our award-winning design team, you will have the tools needed to begin your journey as a medical innovator. If you're ready to make a change in your life and the lives of others, sign up for our empathy module at md.trig.com and let's get started. Andrew, could you define yeah. real quick traceability for maybe people that aren't familiar with traceability and trace matrix? Yeah. For medical device product development, it's a requirement to show that the design input came from a user need and the design output came from that input and that you verify that the outputs meet the inputs and you validate that the final product meets the user need. So if it's something like a toothbrush, it's like, the user needs to clean the teeth. Does it clean the teeth? That's validation. The verification is, did I build something exactly to the specifications of a toothbrush? This is the requirement that you have to do. This is the part of design controls that people think, they think this is the controlling thing. But actually what the FDA was saying was control your process, if that makes any sense. Do good design. And so most people then implemented a stage-gated process as their controlled process which created this need to input to output. You could create a controlled iterative process. What I've never seen before is a controlled evolutionary process, but there's no reason why you can't. There's like mm -hmm. the FDA would not say, no, you can't do a controlled evolutionary process. You absolutely can do an evolutionary process.
Yeah, absolutely. If anyone has any questions, feel free to shoot them in there. In general, I'm just curious. Uh, so how much time does the strategy product save a med tech innovator or someone that's working on? Or actually, I guess also, what does the process look like without this? Because it seems like this is a great way of keeping everything organized and really front of mind. And it seems like it would be really hard without this, but nobody even has this yet. That's crazy. There's two types of medical innovators that I know. I'll just put them into two large buckets. There's not two types. There's lots and lots of types, but two large buckets. Those medical innovators that have no idea they should be doing design controls, a lot just don't know. They're innovating a new medical technology and they just don't have any idea that this design control is a thing. And then there's those of us, myself included, that know very well we're supposed to be doing design controls, but there's just no good notebook for it. So I end up being the chef, not the chef, sorry, I end up being the cook. I know I'm supposed to be doing it, but I just don't because I'm not going to comply to stage gate and I'm not going to comply to iterative. I'm just not, it just, my life, I try to do it. My life doesn't do it. And so I say, you know what? We'll figure it out later. Everybody else in the history of this industry has figured it out. And so if you know what's coming, there's this point at which you're like, okay, we have to implement a quality system. We have to implement design controls. This is a requirement. That's a three-month project. If you had no idea, if like a consultant comes in and says, hey, where's your design history file? And you're like, oh, what's that? Which I see a lot. Oh, That's a nine-month project. And pretty much everybody oh, I've wow. interviewed says some gives me an answer somewhere between three three to nine months to reverse engineer a design history that they didn't take really good notes along the way they didn't build the trace matrix along the way this is exacerbated by the way when there's a lot of handoffs right like right now we see a lot of innovation happen in hospitals and universities and they're handing it off to some startup company and maybe that startup company is going through lots of turnover. There's a day that the design team has to assemble. And sometimes it's a third party. There are cases where like a contract manufacturing firm is the one that's, hey, we got to assemble your design history file. And they're trying to reverse engineer something where there are many degrees of separation from where the people that were in the hospital identifying the unmet need, the people that were coming up with the original concepts, the original like interviews, observations, all that stuff. They're literally reverse engineering it. Here's the pizza. It's the best pizza in the world. Figure out how to reproduce that. And it's a long and painful road. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to add a note. We have a that... question here from Karen Kirsten. If you're open to taking a question, the allower to talk. Let's see. Oh, perfect. I actually don't have a question. I just wanted to say I think this is such a cool tool. I really enjoyed watching the demo. Thank you for walking us through all that. Thank, thank you, you Karen. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's like you're saving people three to nine months of time in a startup environment. And you even mentioned it before how funding is absolutely crucial to getting to nine months of funding. Wow. Yeah. Actually getting to the finish line or getting to market, I guess you could say. It impacted our company, Core Medical Systems. We, myself and the other two founders, we knew exactly what we needed to do. We sat down and took three months to get it done. And we missed a funding round because of time. If we had gotten done three months faster, 
we wouldn't have had a failed company. Now, do we want to point it at one thing? It was this one thing, reverse engineering design controls. No, but every minute counts, every day counts, time counts. And we lost three months reverse engineering our design history file. Now, and to your point, design medical devices take so much time to get through all the different stages that they go through. To your point earlier, if you don't take that time to document as you go, then you have that telephone game of the handoff point from one set of observations to the next, because there will be a lot of different people that touch this thing if it truly has value and is going to benefit and get funding and all of that. And different people will come in at a later stage and see the predicate work that was done and be trying to interpret it. You want to give them as, as much insight as you can documenting where you are at that point in time. All right. So Karen has a question. I'll read it off and we'll see, Andrew, if you can take it. Sure. So can the strategy tool be used for service development too? And how would that vary? So right now you've got it designed for medical devices. Yeah. Medical devices is our passion. It's our target audience. We're with Greenlight Guru. We're really focused on the med tech industry. There's no reason why you can't use strategy for any evolutionary process. One of the things that I can mention right now is that we're in a beta and we've launched this with what I'll call um, templates. So there's nine templates that are in there. There's a few that are really specific to medical devices, like a hazard analysis, a risk assessment, the trace matrix. These are really specific to what you'd be doing for med tech. But then there's other templates in there, like a swap, like important satisfaction, which you could use for any industry sector. What is the number of templates we're going to have where we really want to listen to you, the beta users? Because we deliberately didn't put a lot of things in there. So you won't see, say, business model canvas in there. But if we get tons and tons of people saying, hey, we'd really like you to do business model canvas, then we'll put it in there. So we want to listen to what the users want as far as workflows, templates, et cetera. Do you mind talking to what it looks like to add a new template to this? Is that something that, like, I guess it needs to happen internally to add a new template? Yeah, right now our process is we as a team, we call ourselves, by the way, the Canvas GT squad. So we hold on to the original name, their squad name, but we evaluate the priority of a new Canvas template based on the feedback from the users. And then it's a process of design, right? We're going to go through an evolutionary process of what is the layout. I can tell you right now, like our current trace matrix, our traceability canvas might not be the final rendition. That is still evolving based on feedback that we're getting. We'll take some time. If it's something ready to go, like a business model canvas, that's quick because it's already designed, it's laid out. You have to think about how we might want the table to look or what we might want the table to do because we're implementing both a board and a table for every canvas. Does that table enable traceability like you saw? Does that table enable some score producing some output like you saw on importance and satisfaction? So there would be some work, but it's not instant. It's not like we just hit a button and launch it there. We take some time to develop it. I was just curious of your inspiration to create Canvas GT. It seems like you've done so much of real world experience. And was it like you discovered, wow, we really need a better process for actually getting something to market and like tracking all of this? Or I'm just curious of what was the origin behind that? 
I think it was stars aligning every stop I took along the way, including especially at Triggs. And I'll tell you that story too. Early in my career, when I was a young design engineer, I went and talked to the document management folks at my company and said, hey, I'm the design engineer. This is the standard operating procedure for design controls. And I can't like really work under this system. It's constraining. It really is constraining me. And they're like, rewrite it. I was like, oh, okay. So all the FDA cares about is that you have implemented a controlled process that you repeat over time. So I actually rewrote the document to make it less constraining. You make it easier to work with. I ended up writing design control standard operating procedures. That was some of my very early consulting work was writing those procedures for other medical device companies up to a billion dollar medical device company. I wrote a design control process for early, early on. I was really impacted early on by one of the brightest, most energetic young engineers coming to join our team at Alaris Medical Systems. After a few months, he quit and he's, I can't take it. It's like I'm trapped in a box. He was like, felt constrained and he quit. And when I got in front of my classroom, uh, students at NC State, I was like, we need you. We need your young, bright, innovative minds to be the future of healthcare for our nation. You have to be creative. You have to be that creative genius. You can't allow these boxes to make you miserable so that you leave our industry. So I was like very passionate about keeping creativity in the process. And part of it was just freedom to do so, right? There's nothing stopping anyone from being that chef and maintaining that notebook, right? You can do both, but I was constantly looking for ways. And I've got some sketches in a notebook from months before joining Trig on this idea of using frameworks to enable evolutionary design. I wasn't calling it evolutionary design at the time, but it really wasn't until when I was at Trig, all the pieces came together. We were doing consulting, working with small businesses. We were using other visual collaboration platforms. We were using one called Battery. We were using another one called Mural. We evaluated all, I was evaluating like dozens of different virtual whiteboard solutions. And it was listening to those that we were consulting with. Hey, we've done all this work on this whiteboard. Can this be our trace matrix? And it was like, man, it could be like, that would be awesome. It could be right. So it's like, uh, you know, 25 years of pragmatic creativity, like all came together with this idea. I feel like I'm still at the very beginning of this journey. It's just starting. The idea of, and you've taught me this, that if you're not having fun designing a medical device, like something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. And you're well on that journey of making it so that the joy of the creativity that you should be bringing to this can also be captured as you go and keep it fluid and flexible, but still at the same time, leave a trail so that other people can follow the breadcrumbs and be able to improve upon your work if they need to pick up on it later. As a design engineer, my very first ever job, I went and hung out in the manufacturing floor where hand assembly of products was taking place. I would talk to the people that worked on the line, hand assembling medical devices. And they would talk to me about certain processes were easy, like it made them happy, but certain processes would literally be giving them arthritis. And I'm thinking like what I'm doing in CAD over here can give the person on the manufacturing floor arthritis, 
right? So how is that improving the quality of life? I would talk to my students about this. This is cradle to grave, improve quality of life. We, we want to improve the quality of life of the people that are working at the medical device companies, those people that are on the manufacturing floor making the products. We want to improve the quality of life of the people that are using the medical devices, maybe the doctors, the nurses, the caregivers, the quality of life of the people that are receiving those medical devices. What about me as the design engineer? Like, how about the quality of my life? And so can we improve the quality of life of those people that are day-to-day -day doing med tech? Can they be having fun too? I have never even thought of that before. Like thinking about the people on the manufacturing line, right? Improving their life. That's incredible. I know we're coming up on the hour and I know there's a whole bunch of stuff we haven't talked about. So I think I'll just fast forward to our last question and we'll wrap up from there. So I'm just curious of what advice you have for a young professional that wants to become an entrepreneur and they don't really know where to start, but they're just really, they're invigorated by it, but they're just raw energy at that point. Yeah, I'm going to circle it all the way back to being an entrepreneur as a social service. We want to bring an innovation to the world. That innovation should inherently be something that improves people's lives in some way. You know, it makes things more efficient, makes them more fun, but we're bringing something good to the world. At the same time, we're providing jobs for other people. We're creating a place where people can work and become prosperous, have families and insurance and all this stuff, right? It really is about a social service endeavor and be ready that the decisions that you make are impacting other people's lives. People are quitting their jobs or making career choices to come and work with you. So if this is, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to make, I would check that and ask yourself, why do I really want to do this? I think on that note, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Professor DeMeo of Greenlight Guru, just thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your insights. Thank you. My sincere pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. All right. And thanks to everybody else for joining us. And we'll sign off from there.